In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And Michael, I have a riddle for you. Oh God, I hate riddles. So what do I and Donald Trump have in common? Oof. Man, that's a tough one. Yeah. I don't know. What? Come January 21st, both of us are going to wake up and neither of us will be president. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's really good news. I mean, Whoa! <laughs> happier that he's not going to be president than you're not going to be president. I'm, I'm oh, happier you, about that. Yeah. You, you want me to be president? I mean, it's not that I necessarily want you to be president. I just really don't want him to be president. <laughs> it is a huge day on the Perspectrum. Yes. For literally a year, we have been talking about the abomination that is the Trump presidency. Um, yeah. And in fact, uh, I think it's safe to say that this is our anniversary episode. Yeah. Because it right. was yeah. going to be last week, but you know, let's give that the slip because I wasn't here, which by the way, thank you so much for filling in for me there, Michael. Uh, I had a lot of work that I'm doing on this new house that we're renovating on. Mm -hmm. um, so I really appreciated that you did a great job. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah. It was fun to, to do it. I, uh, I like to do a solo episode every now and again. <laughs> only when good news happens though like yes last time it was all about good news during uh like christmas time and then yeah. this time again all, uh, all about good news yeah well i mean the news wasn't quite in yet but yeah. but just how nice is it that on the anniversary of the perspectrum we are celebrating the fact that donald trump is no longer going to be president i know i'm i'm so psyched about that it's awesome yeah this this podcast has really helped me get through the last year of the Trump presidency, mm -hmm. and I just I just really I, I really appreciate you, Michael. I really appreciate the listeners. It's it's been a really hectic year, but we did it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you and I, we did it. We we did it, <laughs> and and of course the listeners, all of us together. Yeah, yeah really it was our votes thing. that made the difference. <laughs> Yeah, I totally agree. I'm I'm so uh, after like 2016 my relationship with politics has changed so much. Yeah. It it changed from being something that I found interesting and compelling and and like something that I should be having these like these theoretical conversations about. You, you know me, I'm super into like political theory and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, to be, to being this thing where the minutia and loopholes and, you know, any crappy thing that was legal or in illegal, but not prosecutable might occur under this president. It just became yeah. this salient shadow over my life every day. And I yeah. just, I'm so excited that that won't be true as of, yeah. uh, January 21st. I mean, you know, you've known me for a while. You know that I've always been really into politics. Mm -hmm. But I would say that prior to the Trump administration, uh, I had an obsession of politics. 
during the Trump administration, it was a compulsion. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, and I think for you as well, like your your emphasis has always been on like focused on like policy and advocacy. And I don't think that yeah. has has changed too much, but probably uh, added in has just been this need for focusing on like political expediency too, rather than just like trying to commit to the long game of getting the country into the right spot to having yeah. to like make these crappy like concessions and compromises just to be able to like retain a finger hold on uh, the democratic Republic that we, that we think we have like yeah. that's, that's crappy. So I'm yeah. so glad we're, we're hopefully not going to have to do that again. Um, yep. And if we do our jobs right, we won't have to do it again uh, in 2024 either. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with all of that being said, uh, today what we're going to do is our in our first segment, we're going to break down the election results. Mm -hmm. uh, it, then we're going to talk about the attempts by the Trump administration to try to overturn the results, the completely futile attempts. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we're going to talk about basically what are the lessons to be learned from this and how a lot of Democrats seem to be learning the exact wrong lesson from this entire election. Mm -hmm. uh, but we will get to that. Uh, but before we get started, so Michael, I, I seem to recall Donald Trump saying that the moment after the election that COVID-19 would disappear, that no one would care about it, that <laughs> it wouldn't be a big deal. So I assume that means that you don't have any numbers to report to us about COVID-19? Well, the thing about that claim from the president is I'm sure that knowing him, he meant that only if he got elected would that be true. So now that he hasn't been elected for a second term, unfortunately, the COVID coronavirus is still with us. And so I do uh, have numbers. If only... We had elected oh. him. It just would have it would have disappeared the next day. But here we are, and it's worse than freaking ever. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. Um, yeah. So worldwide, uh, as of today, fifty three point four million people have contracted this disease, uh, which is up from forty eight point four million last week, which is a five about a five million case increase worldwide in a single week, which is about a ten percent increase in total cases overall which is astounding so far mm. worldwide 1.29 million people have died which is up from 1.23 million last week which is again a 4.9 percent increase in total deaths like and and those numbers getting away from us there are absolutely reflected in the u.s as well so at this point in the U.S., 10.7 million Americans have contracted COVID, which is up from 9.8 million last week, which mm -hmm. is almost a million new cases in a single week in the United States. Ugh. Note worldwide, the increase is 5 million. So again, we're, we're sitting at those. Yeah, a fifth. Exactly. Uh. Yeah. So that's a 9.2% increase in the U.S. Um, in total cases. Um, which is like the highest we've seen in in literally months. Um, yeah. At this point, 247,000 people have died from COVID, which mm -hmm. is up from 240,000 last week. So yet another week of 7,000 deaths since our last episode. 1,000 deaths a day. 
And we're seeing cases surge across the country. Once again, hospitals are filling up with people sick with this disease, which is straining hospital resources, which we know will lead to more deaths. And we are firmly in another surge of this disease. Yeah. It is so far from over, it's crazy. And, and while we've all been focusing on the election, which is super important, obviously, the real worldwide and national news is that we're losing against this disease. Yeah. Although there was some good news. Yes. There was some very good news. Potentially so, very good news. <laughs> Preliminary <laughs> very good news. So uh, the company Pfizer yeah. uh, has developed a vaccine in which initial trials have demonstrated a 90% success rate. Yeah. Now, that is huge. Yeah. Uh, I believe that when, when I was talking to my dad about herd immunity on the pod uh one of the things that we talked about was how there are different like there's a different percentage for what will constitute herd immunity and that changes based on the virus based on mm -hmm. how contagious the virus is so 90 percent is pretty solid in that regard mm. now one of the things that is important to curb your enthusiasm a bit about is the fact that so far the study has not been peer reviewed yet. Yeah. So like these are preliminary results. They're very promising, uh, but it has not been peer reviewed yet. Mm -hmm. And of course, even if it does get peer reviewed, if, even if this vaccine does end up being, um, you know, a success and it does get approved, it is still going to take quite a while to distribute it yeah. on a massive level. So um, I've heard that a lot of companies are already starting to develop it. Uh, yeah. and wait for that approval so that there's still a good amount of them ready to be distributed. So that's definitely promising news. But even when it does get approved, we're still not going to be out of the woods because it's going to require a massive global distribution yeah. in order to really end this pandemic. And it we're going to be facing obstacles like anti-vaxxers. We're, um, we're hopefully not going to be facing too many obstacles uh, with regard to people's financial situation, because I did I did hear that they are planning on distributing it for free, mm. but there is still definitely going to be a lot of obstacles to overcome after that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, one of those obstacles is for this particular vaccine is that it has to be kept at super cold temperatures in order to be mm. distributed. So all of a sudden you've, you're going from a normal distribution method where maybe you can use coolers to requiring like like significant amounts of either dry ice or liquid nitrogen or something like that to keep this really cold. So, um, and another promising thing is that this, a similar mechanism used by this, um, vaccine is also being used and developed by a couple of other companies as well. So we might have like a significant amount of production capacity for, uh, this mechanism, which, seems to be proving very effective, which is great. One thing to note, however, is that this vaccine achieving like 90% effectiveness in this preliminary study um, in, in stage three clinical trials has nothing to do with the Trump administration. Yeah, even <laughs> though they're already trying to take credit for it. Yeah. So apparently uh, this particular company did not actually accept any of the Operation Warp Speed funds mm -hmm. that the Trump administration tried to put out in order to fast track the production of a vaccine. 
Um, yeah. So literally, they have nothing to do with this. Yeah. Just just want to just want to call that out. <laughs> so yeah, very good news, and it couldn't come at a more crucial or important time um, in the life cycle of this disease because it's not going anywhere unless we stop it. Yeah, and one of the things that I think is also some really good news to share is the fact that Joe Biden has already started to put together his COVID response task force. Yeah, and there's one thing about the task force that I was actually very surprised by. Hmm. Uh, not a single member of his family was on it. <laughs> what? And I was like, how unpresidential. Yeah, but how is you know? he going to make sure that the results end up making him money? <laughs> <laughs> so, and this brings us to breaking down the overall results of the presidential election. Mm -hmm. So, right now, while we are recording this on Wednesday, um... In the presidential election, the AP has called the ra has called every single race except North Carolina and Georgia. So right now, Donald Trump leads in North Carolina. It's almost he's almost certainly going to win North Carolina, and Joe Biden leads in Georgia. Wait, what? Hold on, hold on. Let me say that again. <laughs> Joe Biden leads in Georgia. I know that's what crazy. What? So the final electoral breakdown is probably going to end up be uh, being Joe Biden with 306 electoral votes to Donald Trump's uh, 232 electoral votes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's if and that's if Georgia ends up going to Biden. Yeah. Which at this point, uh, Joe Biden leads by over 10,000 votes. Uh, so even if there is a recount, it's, it's unlikely to change the, uh, the results of the election. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's pretty safe to say that Georgia is going to go into the Biden column yeah. and, and North Carolina is definitely going to go into the Trump column. May I say not to give myself a pat on the back, especially because I was putting together this, this prediction literally days after the election with tons of information. But I will say that, I think I called all of these states to end up going blue, even the ones that were red at the time, except yeah. and, and I did, and except for North Carolina, which is obviously going to go red. So I definitely yeah. called Georgia, Pennsylvania. So I need a little pat on my back, you know. Again, <laughs> thumb on the scale for having literally days yeah. of information with most of the votes in and yeah. a uh, a proven track record of the red barrage and a blue shift. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it also makes sense to go ahead and compare this to our own predictions. Yeah. So um, to the district of Nebraska and Maine, um, we were correct. Hmm. Uh, now, it's po I, it is possible that when I when I was on the pod, I might have mistakenly said the Nebraska three instead of the Nebraska two. Um, but I meant Nebraska two. Hmm. If I said Nebraska three, I meant Nebraska two. Uh, so we got those right. There were only three states that we got wrong. Hey, that's pretty good. And what's funny is the two states like when when we recorded the episode where we called each of the races, where we predicted each of the races. The two states that I said, if I'm wrong about any of these states, it's going to be these two, hmm. were Florida and North Carolina. 
hmm. and I was wrong, ab- and and we were wrong about those. <laughs> you were too. even right about being wrong about those yeah. states. <laughs> <laughs> like when I predicted what I would be wrong about, I was right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Toot my own horn. That's great. But except Georgia, like Georgia, right? <laughs> that was the one state. Like I think that you might have even like been a longer holdout on Georgia. I just I just saw I was. what was like going on in Georgia. I saw what happened in 2018. And I was like, ah, I don't know. I have a feeling, but like there was no yeah. good there were, there weren't like good reasons behind that feeling. Yeah, I just I I remember I spent almost no time thinking about Georgia. I was like, yeah, no. I mean, you know, maybe it'll be close, but it's t- there's yeah. Georgia going to Joe Biden. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, to be fair. So much of the map, basically all of the states except for um, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Georgia were exactly the same as 2016 in terms of the presidential race. Yeah. And like, thank goodness that those flipped. (laughs) Like reaffirming the Democratic hold in the the North is really great. Apparently, when you insult the beloved dead senator of a state, they <laughs> tend to not be okay with that. Yeah, yeah. So feuding with a dead guy, not the best look. <laughs> For sure. And and importantly, when, you know, uh, indigenous people like turn out in, in record yeah. numbers, um, that yeah. makes a big difference, too. Yeah. Yeah. God, it's... Did you see, did you see the article where someone was... Uh, asking whether one of the indigenous representatives in the state was a citizen and questioning whether they should be able to vote. What the it's hell? like, excuse me? Excuse me? <laughs> They're more what citizen the... than literally any of us. <laughs> yeah. Good yeah. Lord. And, and what's interesting when I look at this map, the reason why, like, this might be an arbitrary way of looking at it, but one of the things that makes Georgia such an outlier is... Like, it is the only blue state that isn't bordered by another blue state. Sure. Like, it is It is an island. It is a blue island yeah. in a Red Sea. That's um, true. And we're actually going to talk a little bit more about how it got that way uh, in our good actually a little bit later. So, you know, obviously stay tuned for that. So, Nathan, the first question I would ask is... <laughs> How did this happen? Like, like, why did Joe Biden win? How did he make this happen? Well, there's definitely a number of factors at play here. Um, first off, I think it is important to compare um, the elections of 2016 to uh, the election right now. So, first off, let's compare the popular vote. So Donald Trump increased his popular vote from uh, it was about 63 million votes in 2016. And so far, and by the way, these are still counting. He got 70, almost 72 million. So Mm -hmm. he actually increased his vote by nearly 10 million. And, And we're still counting. We're still counting votes. But at the same time. Joe Biden got 77 million votes, which compare that to Hillary Clinton in 2016. She got approximately, and I'm rounding here, she got 66 million. So he increased her 
popular vote by 11 million votes. Mm. So one of the huge things to point out in this particular election is that turnout was way up and passion was way up. So I would say that one of the biggest reasons why it was as close as it was, because there were a lot of there were a lot of outlets that were predicting that this was just going to be a blowout for for Joe Biden. Mm. I think a huge driving force of that was I think people were underestimating the turnout on both sides. Yeah. And Donald Trump has definitely demonstrated that he really riles up Republicans. But the other issue is he also riles up Democrats. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, more people hate him than like him. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the popular vote is really not that close at all. The electoral college votes at f vote at first glance doesn't seem that close. But then when you look at the individual states, when you look at the fact that uh, in Georgia, Joe Biden is only ahead by like 10,000. Mm -hmm. um, in Arizona, he's only ahead by like a little over 10,000. In Michigan, um, in Michigan, he has a pretty comfortable lead. Sure. Uh, but in, uh, in Wisconsin, he's ahead by like 20,000. Yeah. I mean... In, in Pennsylvania, which has a much larger voting populace, um, he is ahead by uh, about 50,000, which compared to the entire electorate, is that's pretty close. It is. So this election was like, from an electoral college standpoint, looking at the individual states, it was pretty close. Yeah. Which is like... And we've talked about this a couple of times, the weird idiosyncrasies that result from, like, the Electoral College. But the fact is that, you know, like, in 2016, again, Hillary got 60, nearly 66 million votes, 48%, and Trump got 63 million votes, 46%, and Trump won because he got the votes in the right places. In this case, um, Joe Biden is looking to... Like, he's going to get a pretty significant uh, run of the Electoral College, a win by a similar number a similar number of Electoral College votes that um, Trump did in 2016. Slightly uh, more, actually. Yeah, yeah, slightly more. If, Which if is funny because at the time, Donald Trump was basically like, oh, this was the biggest electoral win in history. <laughs> so by Trump's own logic, Biden just won in a landslide. Yeah, exactly. And... But he did that again by these small margins in places where it mattered, and what enabled him to get his, um, you know, three percent lead overall in in the popular vote, is where these like big blue states, which is like it's a weird, it's kind of a weird thing. Like he's going to he's going to have an outsized electoral victory because he got his votes uh, by small margins in the right places, um, which don't get me wrong. I'm happy about that, but like, it's it it seems it's weird to me. The other thing I'd note is also like the the relative lack of a a, a third party candidate pulling from really either party in this election. Um, yeah. So in 2016, um, neither Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump received a majority of the popular vote, whereas in this case. Um, Biden's at nearly 51 percent, so a slight majority. So basically, from 2016. Biden gained um, uh, like 
nearly 3% um, over Hillary's uh, percentage of the popular vote, while Donald Trump nearly, uh, he gained about 1.5% over his margin in 2016. So really like the poor, like they both increased their percentage of the popular vote over, um, you know, their party's uh, percentage in 2016. So the lack of a third party pulling, pulling margin away from them probably made a big difference. Um, the question is like where it made a difference because it's unclear exactly yeah. where the third yeah. party votes would have gone. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about like actual policy reasons why we got here. Yeah. So one of the things that I have been saying from the very beginning of the pandemic is that if Trump had handled the pandemic well, he would have cruised to reelection. Yeah. Like if he had done this well, if he had done a good job, he would have completely, it, would, it wouldn't even be a competition. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter who he ran against. It wouldn't even be a competition. But the issue is he didn't. Yeah. Like we make up, I mean, we've said this over and over again, we make up approximately like uh, a fifth of all deaths in the world. Mm -hmm. And we only make up 5% of the global population. So this has been an abysmal failure. And not only that, we're experiencing an economic depression and we're experiencing just overall economic uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And when you have that, when you have a time of crisis, people want a certain level of stability. And Donald Trump just he doesn't he's not stable <laughs> he's I unstable mean, yeah he's <laughs> yeah. like you could you could argue so you could argue that some some of the ways in which he was appealing to people was the fact that he was an unstable guy but when you're in the middle of a crisis that's not what you want that's not what you need yeah so yeah. i mean I, I think that honestly if my neighbor's cat had ran against donald trump <laughs> probably would have won well that's that's a huge i mean that's a huge huge thing like everybody's saying this is a referendum on Trump himself. And I think that's pretty clear, especially when you compare Trump's results to the Republican party results overall. Yeah. Um, but like the fact is that a victory over Trump is awesome and it's going to be, and it's super critical for our nation and all of these things, but it does not equate to a victory of Democrat, like big D Democrat Democrats yeah. over um, Republicans in in like winning the uh, mind share of the people, you know. Yeah. Um, and actually, that's an important point that we had made like a while back, where we had said on election day, if if Joe Biden does win, it is important to recognize that this is not a victory. Yeah. Or at least this is not the victory. Yeah. Like the victory is what happens when policies get passed. Yeah. And in that regard, that victory hasn't happened yet. Yeah. So it's wonderful that Donald Trump is not going to be president anymore, but there's so much work to do like on top of that. So, yeah. And to your point, like it looks like at this point anyway, it's unsure whether a policy victory is even possible because of or at least significantly uh, significant policy victories are even possible um, because it looks like 
it's a toss up whether we'll have a majority in the Senate or not. Yeah, um, because right now uh, the makeup is currently um, 50 48 for uh, Republicans versus Democrats, or at least, you know, Democrats as well as the two independents that caucus with the Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only chance that Democrats have of picking up the Senate is if they win both of the special elections in Georgia. Yeah, which is a huge and, if. you know, we should do everything we can to make that happen. And, you know, the fact that Joe Biden won def- definitely demonstrates a proof of concept. Yeah. But it is still important to recognize that that is a huge, like, that is a huge if. Yeah. Um, now, that being said, I, I, I do think that we should end this segment on something positive. Mm-hmm. Because overall, I, I do want us to think of this as a positive victory. Now, I'm sure that um, probably even later in this pod, I'm going to go right back to shitting on Biden the way I <laughs> did all during the primary. Uh, but for now, there's one area which we can actually appreciate. And that is the fact that there are a number of executive orders that Joe Biden has already promised on day one he's going to sign. Mm-hmm. And... These involve executive orders that overturn some of the horrific policies of the Trump administration. So these include ending the ban on transgender people serving in the military, which is massive. Mm-hmm. Uh, this includes reinstating DACA, which is so important. This includes reinstating um, environmental regulations that the that the Trump administration gutted, which several several analysis groups have indicated that this that the uh, overturning of such regulations will lead to basically poisoned water supplies in several areas near uh, certain uh, near certain production plants um, also included that in that is going back into the Paris climate agreement mm-hmm. which I think is probably the biggest thing on that list because yeah. like Got got the one of the stupidest things that Trump did, and it's a pretty high it's bar. A long list is the fact that he got out of the Paris Climate Agreement, mm-hmm. which already wasn't enough. Yeah, like the Paris Climate Agreement already was not enough, and this idiot decided, well, not only am I going to not do anything to fight against climate change, I'm going to actively contribute to making the problem worse. Mm-hmm. And Joe Biden's going to put us back in the Paris Climate Agreement. Yeah. He's also going to prevent us from leaving the WHO, which I'll remind Thank you goodness. is um, was an action that Trump announced that he was going to do, which happened uh, during. And, and this is true. A pandemic. Yeah. Just just to let you know, WHO stands for World Health Organization. They yeah. are the organization that administers world health during a pandemic. <laughs> so there are definitely policy reasons to celebrate yeah and biden getting elected and when biden gets inaugurated and a huge one which again is super salient is that one of the biggest threats to america right now is this pandemic and the power to make sure that this is handled well sits in his office so the fact that we're going to have a competent person who's going to be able to help get the right people in the right seats to address this thing is huge. Now, now hopefully he can he can encourage 
um, whatever Senate we end up with to put together a really strong and progressive stimulus package. But just the fact that we're going to have someone who is going to be able to put together a good plan for trying to address this, I think is huge. So now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, uh, Good Actually. So Nathan, why do we do Good Actually? Well, Michael, we do Good Actually because the world kind of sucks sometimes. You know, the world sometimes feels a little bit helpless. It feels rough, especially in 2020. Mm. It's just, it's overall just been a bad year. But as is the case with love, you know, based on the movie Love Actually, when you really look around yourself, you realize that good actually does exist in certain places. And when it does, it's nice to talk about it. So, Michael, what is our good actually for this week? Well, our good actually is is right on topic this week, um, as everything seems to be revolving around the presidential um, election. Our good actually focuses on the dark horse of this election, Georgia, and the incredible work that has been done by Stacey Abrams and numerous other um, uh, advocates in the state registering literally hundreds of thousands of new voters in the state to help turn Georgia blue for the first time in a really long time. Yeah, you know, it is definitely important to recognize that she did not do it alone. For sure. But but I do just want to take a minute to talk about Stacey Abrams individually. So in her gubernatorial race in 2018, the same guy who was running against her was overseeing, like, the voter rolls. And during that process, he oversaw the purging of hundreds of thousands of um of voter registrations of, of of registered voters and that is just like so dirty that's so dirty yeah and you know if i were her and that had happened to me i would probably just think well screw politics this stuff is useless like they're just going to cheat anyway but her reaction was not like, I'm going to go sulk in a corner. It was, I'm going to do something about it. Mm -hmm. So she founded the organization Fair Fight that was dedicated to fighting against voter suppression laws and making sure that people were registered to vote and had the information they needed in order to vote. And, you know, that's my favorite type of politician. Mm -hmm. Like, one of the things, if you recall, that we talked about in the primary was... The politicians that I separate, the way I separated politicians on a hierarchy was who was actually running for a reason and who was running so that they could be president. Yeah. And when it comes to politicians, the good politicians are the ones that have a reason why they're a politician, specifically a policy issue that they're running passionately on, that they're fighting for. And that's... And that's what she's doing. Like, that's who she is. So her number one political issue is uh, fighting against voter suppression. Mm -hmm. And that 
And that's what she's been doing. And it is very fair to say that along along with the efforts of other organizers in Georgia, the organizing that they did cooperatively is what ultimately turned Georgia blue. Mm -hmm. And that is something that Democrats around the country should take note of, should learn the lessons of. And I just think that that type of story where, you know, they didn't want her to be governor. So she said, all right, screw you. I'm going to make sure that your electoral votes go to uh, go to a Democrat in the next presidential election by making sure that people actually have the right to vote. Mm-hmm. And that's just the most beautiful way yeah. to say fuck you to Georgia Republicans. <laughs> and and if those two uh, special or like the runoff election seats end up going to Democrats, it will have been in large part because of the work that those organizers have done, which means that they were like did the marginal work to hand the Senate to Democrats, enabling whatever uh, incredible progressive legislating we get to pressure the Democrats to actually pass. Which might be limited, but still <laughs> much better than much better than having Mitch McConnell in charge. For so. Sure. So, you know, I, I, I do think that Stacey Abrams deserves quite a lot of credit for the work that she's done. Yeah. It's very possible that later in her political career, there will be certain issues in which I will disagree with her on. Uh, so far, she hasn't come out one way or another on Medicare for All, uh, which, you know, usually my thought is, well, if you're not saying that, uh, <laughs> if, you, if you're not fighting for it right now, then I kind of doubt that that's going to be one of your main issues ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but even with that, I, I, I think she deserves a world of credit. I think that all of the organization that was done in Georgia deserves a world of credit. You're an inspiration and a testament to democracy. All right. So for our second segment, we are focusing on uh, Donald Trump's really feeble may i say limptic attest, attempts to really <laughs> steal uh this election from out from under uh joe biden in just like the silliest weakest like ineffectual way possible like there is literally yeah. no possible way that it will work and yet for some reason he's wasting time and money and energy and um you know casting doubt on our democracy in order to you know to do this it's just ridiculous and silly and also just so painfully predictable uh it's so true i mean the thing that has been really disappointing is how many republicans i've been seeing fall for this mm-hmm. like, i know usually I know. usually on this podcast i i try to keep my attacks i i try to keep my character attacks against elected politicians, elected Republicans. I I really do try not to specifically target like uh, conservative voters because, you know, I I do have a lot of friends who are conservative voters and I, you know, I have very important disagreements with them. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to reconcile those disagreements. Sometimes it's hard to reconcile those values. But at the end of the day, I... I do have a lot of people that I love 
that voted for Donald Trump. Sure. Yeah. So love I and really respect. Yeah, love and respect. So I really do try not to like target all of that antipathy towards them. Mm -hmm. That being said, like if you honestly do believe that Democrats are trying to steal this election, you're an idiot. I mean, literally every single expert, every single analyst told you about the red mirage. They yeah. said, here's what's going to happen on election night. It's going to look like Trump is way ahead. And the reason for that is because he told his supporters to not vote by mail. Mm -hmm. And then when they start counting the mail-in ballots, which in a lot of these states, they're not allowed to do until election day, Biden's going to come out ahead. They told you that. Yeah. We've told you that. Everyone has told you that. And yet, once the mail-in ballots start getting counted, it's like, well, gee, golly, gosh darn it. How are all these going for Joe Biden? Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, you, you can't be that stupid. Yeah. I mean. If you actually think that there is this fraud you're deluded i guess yeah. like even 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 fox news is not supporting these baseless claims of voter fraud yeah well now, maybe some people depends. on fox news are yeah. but, i mean but like the anchors are like cutting away from kaylee McEnany when she's starting yeah, to talk about these I things did, because i did see that they're totally not credible now are yeah. they are some of their uh more uh, silly and ridiculous opinion commentators stroking the fears of of election interference. Absolutely, yes. Cough, cough. Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram. Cough, cough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Really good coughing. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, had some, I had something in my throat. <laughs> it was it was three crazy Republican commentators. Um, yeah. yeah, but uh, but like, but there's no factual basis for any of this yeah. it's it's literally just fear-mongering yeah. and the the you don't even have to go and look at the actual facts and what's being alleged in in these lawsuits that we're going to talk about in order to reach the reliable conclusion that this is probably bs case yeah. in point one if the democrats could steal an election why would they not secure the Senate while doing so? <laughs> Two, if the Democrats were stealing particular battleground elections in these states, why are Republicans trying to throw out the presidential election on these ballots, but not the fact that they won in the House and the Senate on the exact same pieces of paper? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think one of the one of the best one of the best examples of this is uh, of just how stupid and how incompetent their their arguments and their uh, their attempts are is in our our favorite former mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani. Mm. Now, I, I think for a moment, some people might have thought. Oh, I know they hate Bloomberg too. So was it? Were you going to talk about Bloomberg? No, 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 no. Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, Way Rudy worse. Giuliani takes the cake. Bloomberg yeah. was a silly fool, but Rudy Giuliani is like, uh, I think I think he is when all of the rats in the subway gathered up all the gross gum on the sidewalk 
and they used it to create a man suit, a yeah. pink little man suit. <laughs> and then that man suit got bitten by Count Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> so, so one of my favorite moments was, so he was given this speech where he was talking about the vote count coming in. And he was bringing up the fact that all of these mail-in ballots were going for Joe Biden. And there's this moment where he's like, do you think we're stupid? Do you think we're fools? And at first when I saw that, I was like, yes, yes, I think you're stupid. I I think you're really stupid. Like, I think you're unbelievably stupid. At one point during that speech, he asked, how many votes do we have to count? Isn't it enough? All of them. (laughs) All of them. 80% of the vote is in. Isn't that enough? (laughs) No. No, you got to. But but the, the, the greatest, he actually answered his own question a little bit later. So there was this there was this campaign event that they that they tried to host um, at the Four Seasons, but apparently somebody they successfully messed up. hosted it at the Four Seasons. <laughs> yeah, but somebody apparently messed up and booked Four Seasons landscaping rather than the Four Seasons hotel. So they just had this campaign event at this Four Seasons landscaping company that was between like a sex shop. And a crematorium, <laughs> which, I mean, I'm not the only person that's pointed this out, but what a beautiful way for the Trump administration to end. I know. That's so and, good. And during, and during that event, uh, some media reporters had apparently said, uh, hey, it's just been called. And then he was like, really? Who's it been called by? Huh? Who's it been called by? They're like, literally all the networks, like all the networks have called. He's like, oh, all of the networks, all of the networks. And like, I'm not even mocking him. That's what he sounded like. That's exactly what he said. That's exactly what he sounded like. And, and you know, and the funniest thing is he, he, he accidentally said the quiet part out loud Mm -hmm. where he said, you know, uh, the media doesn't decide elections. The courts do. Oh my God. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) wait, nope. What? You, what? you messed up. The pe- people do. <laughs> yeah, no. The, so the media oh, reports on the votes, and the votes decide the election. Like, that's how it works. Yeah. Like, the, the idea of, oh, well, the media doesn't decide who wins the election. That's that's a red herring argument. Yeah, because clearly Because nobody's saying that the media decides that. The media calls that based on the votes that they've reported. Mm-hmm. And no, the courts don't decide the election. At least they're not supposed to. Yeah. Cough, cough. Bush v. Gore, cough, cough. Man, you were more Republicans in the throat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, it's I got just Republicans stuck in my yeah. throat. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, no. Voters choose the president, yeah. not the courts, which brings us to the lawsuits. So take it away, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so Trump has been, as we all know, he's been making these claims that this is going to be a fraudulent election for a while now. And um, he he put out like a number of statements on Twitter, which I just want to go over because they're just oh they're just so funny and and they they really do capture like all of the inanity of of these claims. So so to start off, he tweeted last night I was leading often solidly in many key states in almost all instances Democrat run and controlled then. One by one, they started to magically disappear as surprise ballot dumps were counted. Very strange. And the pollsters got it completely and historically wrong. Like, you're describing the red mirage. The pollsters yeah. told you there would be a red mirage. You're, yeah. you're just... Uh, 
It's just, and at one point he said, uh, we hereby claim the state of Michigan. If in fact there was a large number of secretly dumped ballots as we, as has been widely reported, like one, no, it hasn't. No one reported that. That's fake. That's fake. And also you can't just claim a state. That's not how elections work. Not even if you say hereby. (laughs) Hey, you know what, Michael, in reference to what we said earlier about me not being president on January, uh, on January 21st, mm. I retract that statement <laughs> and I hereby claim every state in the United States. Oh I am now gosh. the president. The first unanimous electoral victory in election history. Wow. That's amazing. I can't believe you just did that. Man, th- this I'm, one I'm weird, this yeah. one weird trick that enables you to become president of the United States. Yeah. And I'm going to choose my dog Blake as my vice president. Wow. The first blonde dog vice president I hereby claim female hereby dog vice president <laughs> in american history this is excellent but not the first fe- not the first dog elected official apparently there's a, a town in kentucky that elects a dog every year or every election for mayor um anyway <laughs> that can't be true no it's totally true that can't be true no it's 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 true go look it up it's crazy what the hell? Yeah, this uh, the Labrador was, I think, unseated as the mayor in favor of a French bulldog, which is pretty bold in Kentucky. What? <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> anyway, okay, okay. On to serious business. No less ridiculous than a dog as a mayoral candidate, but certainly more important to our electoral process. So, basically, it seems like the Trump administration is trying to use fake lawsuits in order to lend credibility in the courts of public opinion to the claims about voter fraud. Um, So it's kind of like, well, you're not going to, you're not going to file a lawsuit unless you have evidence, right? Like at least some evidence has to be, has to be there for you to file a lawsuit. And, and because Trump is talking about voter fraud, then I guess his law, his lawsuits are about voter fraud and therefore there must be evidence for voter fraud. The thing is, anyone can file a lawsuit. His lawsuits are not about voter fraud, and there is no evidence of fraud, and all of the lawsuits have been thrown out. <laughs> um, so, so just so you don't have to take our word for it, because obviously, especially if you disagree with us on stuff, maybe maybe you don't think that um, our interpretation of the facts is always the right one. Um, so, I wanted to just walk through quickly the the key um, lawsuits in the key states that we're working through. Um, So there are six states where the Trump administration and other Republican organizations have uh, put together claims about voting irregularities. So note that none of these lawsuits are about fraud in the way that Trump has talked about it, where like people are voting improperly um, like dead people are voting or people that, that shouldn't be eligible are voting or something like that. None of these are about that. Voter fraud is, is again, not really a problem in the United States. And if you want more information on that, you can literally visit the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative organization, and look at their tracker. Anyway, so in Pennsylvania, um, the Trump teams have put together um, a... Uh, a lawsuit to stop the counting of mail-in votes. They, they did this. Uh, it has subsequently been totally thrown out, but they did this uh, 
while those votes were still being counted. And they alleged that um, GOP observers had been barred from observing the count. Um, and specifically barred from observing the count of mail-in votes, which is which is weird. And if that's true, that's a problem, right? Like we have poll observers or, or you know, tabulation observers from both sides of the aisle so we can ensure that there's a fair election and they can hold everybody accountable and be witnesses. So if they're being systematically excluded, that's a problem. The problem is that it's totally not true. Um, the judge who is reviewing this case asked one of the, the lawyers point blank, did the GOP have representatives in the room? And the guy was like, yes, yes, we did. And the judge responded, quote, I'm sorry, then what's your problem? Um, so again, so like this is like the first of many cases where they're making these actual fake claims, which I'm not sure why these lawyers are not actually being reprimanded for this because bringing, bringing frivolous lawsuits is uh, grounds for, I think, I think reprimand, potentially even disbarment, certainly contempt of court. Anyway, um, the only thing they did get accomplished in Pennsylvania is that their observers were allowed to stand slightly closer to the vote counting machines. Big win. Big win for stopping voter fraud. <laughs> uh, in Michigan, where Biden is currently 150,000 votes ahead, they filed uh, a few lawsuits, but again, they couldn't actually provide any evidence for any of them. So one claim was that um, GOP observers had been prevented from seeing uh, the curing process, which is basically when a ballot has been um, marked by something other than a pen um, or stained in some way. So if you got like a coffee stain on a ballot, it'll be kicked out as rejected by the ballot counting machines. And what happens then is the poll workers replicate the votes on that ballot on a clean sheet of paper and then run that through the machine. So the claim um, from the GOP was that they there were a large number of um, erroneously uh, recreated ballots that were then counted. Um, and that, you know, the, the, there were no GOP observers that were allowed to see this. The problem is they've been able to gather literally no evidence for this claim. They literally, they just said, we have a belief that this is taking place. They've not been able to get any witnesses, no affidavits, nothing. Um, and again, like the people that work at these polling centers, these poll workers, these observers are bipartisan, independent people just trying to ensure the integrity of our election process. Um, another claim that they had in Michigan was that the, uh, they claimed that um, a, an, a Republican election observer claimed that she had received a sticky note from a poll worker alleging that absentee ballots were being counted improperly. And so they requested that the counting of absentee ballots be stopped until they could investigate this. Um, but they couldn't name the poll worker or find any proof. And so this evidence is just hearsay. It's literally someone that heard a rumor and then tried to bring it to court. And again, like, again, with this claim, it's like the only thing this would do is kick the can down the road. There's no way that these tiny claims could actually make a difference in these elections um, because they're almost definitely not true. And all they would do is delay the certification of this election process. So it's, it's clear so far anyway, as we've gone through these and with all these claims that we'll review, that the Trump organization is not actually interested in trying to suss out voter fraud. 
they're only interested in trying to look legitimate and trying to cast doubt on our electoral process and just delay the inevitable. Um, so in Georgia, um, where Biden is leading by 14,000 votes, they have an affidavit from a poll worker who claims that he may or may not have seen a small number of ballots which had arrived after the deadline um, being mingled in with valid ballots in Chatham County. Um, but the Democrats have multiple affidavits from poll workers that say they didn't observe anything like this. And the poll worker who submitted this affidavit um, that, you know, th that the, he observed these regular regularities um, clarified that he saw a group of invalid ballots be set down on a table. He left the area and when he came back, they were gone. So he was literally not there to observe the thing that he claims to may or may not have observed. So again, the judge threw this out for lack of evidence. Similar thing in Arizona, where Biden leads by 13,000 votes. The, claim, uh, the campaign cl uh, claims that um, poll workers uh, were instructed to cast ballots um, after the machine had detected an overvote, which is where... Um, which is where you, you vote for more than the number of candidates you can vote for. For example, you couldn't vote for both Biden and Trump. That ballot would be rejected. But again, there's literally no evidence for this. Um, like, like no one has been able to find out whether this is true or not. And so it seems like it's just something that is made up. And the thing is, without evidence, you can't succeed in an in a injunctive claim at court, obviously. Without evidence, you have no standing. You can't do it. Um, so that was obviously thrown out as well. Also note that lawsuit in Arizona is not about the false claim that Trump supporters were provided with Sharpie markers in order to, mac the mask, or in order to cast their ballots. Um, which Trump supporters were protesting outside of counting facilities in Arizona, claiming like Sharpie gate. Um, the problem is that in fact, Sharpie pens are actually the best pens to use for, for counting and counting machines. So that's a totally erroneous claim. I, I think they're, I think they're mistaken. Sharpie gate was that time that <clears throat> Donald Trump used a Sharpie to alter a map, <laughs> a hurricane trajectory map, because he had apparently at one point accidentally said that it would hit Alabama. So that, that that's Sharpie gate. You're, I guess it's, I guess it's big Sharpie really affecting <laughs> our election. Sharpie. <laughs> Deep Sharpie. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, and then in Nevada, they had a similar claim. Uh, Biden is leading by about 36,000 votes there. They filed a lawsuit, um, claiming that thousands of people voted illegally in Clark County, but that's basically as specific as the lawsuit gets. Um, they don't provide any evidence. They don't provide specific examples. And so far, they've been able to find no evidence that that's true. Um, the Trump organization has referred to Bill Barr that they claim that 3,000 people voted um, while not living in the state and that that is an illegal fraud. Um, now, there is evidence that that um, these people voted without living in the state. But the problem is, you don't have to live in the state to vote there. That just has to be your permanent residence. For example, Trump votes absentee in Florida, and he lives in the White House, famously. <laughs> like, 
that's that's yeah. for if you're if you're you know out of state for whatever reason like you don't have to be you just have to be a permanent resident you don't have to so so another yeah. totally erroneous claim and the thing is as i mentioned all of these are totally without evidence most of them have been thrown out even if these were to make it uh, further up the court somehow um they're really not going to affect the outcome of the election even if they even if they succeed um, yeah. So really, there is no worry from an election, from like a, a an outcome perspective, that these will have an impact. But they will have an impact on our confidence in our electoral process, in the integrity of our elections, and the fact that Republicans are coming out and trying to sow the seeds of discontent and and fear about our election being corrupted is a real threat to our democracy. Yeah. At this point, it's not even that they're grasping at straws. It's like somebody used a projector to project an image of a straw on the wall, <laughs> and they're bashing their faces against that projection <laughs> trying to bite it. Yeah, exactly. And and it's not just... The thing is, it's not just these uh, totally cor- like inane Republican leaders and representatives. It's also Attorney General... Bill Barr, who has authorized DOJ prosecutors to pursue investigation in, investigations into voting irregularities before states have certified the election, which reverses a longstanding DOJ policy, um, which, you know, uh, was designed to make it so that people decide elections, not the DOJ. So basically, the DOJ can go in and investigate irregularities um but only after an election has been certified so they can go in and and help uh you know fix something after the fact but they're not trying to go in there and be the vote counters and so the fact that he's even authorizing this is just adding more fuel to this totally silly and erroneous fire that um is trying to undermine our confidence in our election system and the final cherry on top that I want to add is a pretty good uh, argument for why Trump is doing this. Mm. So, I mean, uh, the obvious argument that a lot of people would probably probably think is, oh, well, this is just his way of trying to feed his ego. Mm-hmm. You know, Um and there's definitely a possibility of that uh, based on like internal reports and stuff. But the thing that I think is probably the most likely scenario is this is part of one final scam by the Trump administration. So right now, the Trump campaign has been sending out a flood <laughs> of emails to his supporters asking for donations specifically asking for donations to fight this stuff in court. And there's one campaign message that's been sending around, which is basically saying, you know, this is, this is your final notice. It says, quote, so far you've ignored all our emails asking you to join us in defending the election. You've ignored Team Trump, Eric, Laura, Don, the vice president, and you've ignored the president of the United States. <laughs> Basically, they're saying, give us money so that we can fight this in court. Yeah. 
But if you read the fine print, it admits that 50% of the donations are going to go towards paying off the campaign debt. Mm-hmm. 50%. There is another email that was sent out that led to a donation page for Trump's Make America Great Again committee. And again, it, it it's it's saying help protect the integrity of this election. But again, if you look at the fine print, 80 or 60% of donations go to the campaign debt and 40% go to the RNC. (laughs) It is one final scam to try to pay off his campaign debts. See, that's That's the thing. When people claim that Trump isn't corrupt because he's not bought and sold, at the very best, he's good old-fashioned enrich yourself corrupt. (laughs) Absolutely ridiculous. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat of the Week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Well, we got a real tasty, juicy asshat. Ugh, you shouldn't say it that way. (laughs) (laughs) I will say it that way. This is staying in the pot. (laughs) Is a former Trump advisor and everyone's favorite Breitbart racist, Steve Bannon. Oh, uh, thank goodness. Steve Bannon finally made it finally as an asset. List. That is like, excellent. I, I think he's got a, I think he probably takes the award as biggest asshat that it took us this long to, to recognize. I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. But to be fair, he, he really does deserve recognition, especially, especially for this. Yeah, exactly. So Nathan, what did Steve Bannon do to finally make it on our podcast? So you know how Dr. Fauci has been trying as hard as he possibly can to keep the country from, you know, dying of a pandemic? Sure, yeah. The 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 uh, lifelong uh, health official who is a foremost leading expert on epidemiology and is leading the effort to save American lives. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Fauci. I know him. Yeah, 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 that guy. Um, so apparently uh, Steve Bannon... Um, has a uh, has his own prescription for Dr. Fauci. Oh, okay. I didn't know yeah. he's a doctor, but that's cool. Yeah, he's a doctor. So, yeah. uh, so he he was he was on this. Uh, I think it was it was a it was a podcast. It was called the War Room, mm-hmm. um, where he was talking about he, he was basically criticizing the ways in which Dr. Fauci has been critical of Donald Trump, mm. and. Uh, He said, quote, second term kicks off with firing Fauci. No, I actually want to go a step further, but the president is a kind hearted man and a good man. (laughs) So if you are so evil that compared to you, Trump is a kind hearted good man. (laughs) I mean, that's red flag number one. Yeah, but it gets better. He continues. I'd like to go back to the old times of Tudor England. I'd put their heads on pikes, right? I'd put them at the two corners of the White House as a warning to federal bureaucrats. You either get with the program or you're gone. Oh, Jesus Oh, my God. (laughs) Jesus. So the guy that has been working tirelessly to defend 
the country from a pandemic, who already has had to hire security. Mm-hmm. He's had to hire security in order to protect himself and his family because he hasn't been sycophantic enough to Donald Trump and his family has been getting death threats. Now this guy is saying he should be beheaded and his head should be put on a pike. Yeah. And yet what they claim of- that Democrats require perfect <laughs> unity and conformity and commitment to socialism or whatever they claim. Yeah. <laughs> you either get with the program or you're gone. What the hell? Yeah. Oh, my you know, God. In response, he ended up getting banned from Facebook. And look, normally... I'm one of the first people to say, like, you shouldn't ban people from social media just because they say stupid shit. This was a death threat. Yeah. Like, this was a threat of violence. This was an incitement of violence. This is one of the cases in which, this is one of the very few cases in which I think that social media companies are absolutely justified in taking this down. Absolutely. This is, yeah, this is, he, he got permanently banned from Twitter. Which I just think is so awesome. And and his lawyer, like, stepped down. He was like, I'm not representing this guy anymore. <laughs> uh, just there's a little justice in that. But to your point, like, I mean, we talked about this on the show a few weeks ago. Like, when you say this kind of thing, the f- yeah. when and you have a large audience, the likelihood that someone might try to enact this claim, like, oh, Steve Bannon's going to like me now that I'm going to go and try to you know, behead someone becomes almost certain that eventually if you keep advocating for this kind of thing, this becomes almost a statistical certainty that someone in your very large audience will try to act on this. It's stochastic terrorism. Yeah. God. Go back to Tudor England where, you know, the, like, the king beheaded his wife because she couldn't give him a son. Like, yeah, seriously. That's what you want to go back to, oh seriously. God. If I feel like seriously? if we get a time machine someday, we should use it for this kind of thing. We should be like, to okay, cool. Back we'll to, just send yeah. you back. <laughs> you can be. Uh, I'm yeah, sure you much... get quickly executed. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Have fun living in a world without antibiotics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure all of your certain medical ailments will come to haunt you very quickly there. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, congratulations. And hearty congratulations. To Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon. For being our asshat of of the the week. week. So for our last segment, we wanted to talk about um, some of the takeaways from this presidential election, kind of like what it means and what it's going to mean for the future. And I'm sure we'll talk about this a lot in coming pods, especially as more data, more analysis and information comes out. Um, Because again, even though it's felt like weeks or even years, it has been less than two weeks since the presidential (laughs) election night. Um, So yeah, yeah, the information is still kind of all coming together, but we wanted to put together some initial thoughts on, on kind of what all this means. Yeah. And one of the things that happened that was very unfortunately predictable is that Democrats are learning all of the wrong lessons from this. Mm. So, I will throw them one bone, 
and then I'm going to shit all over them. <laughs> so basically what a lot of centrist Democrats are trying to argue in this is that the reason why Joe Biden came so close to losing and the reason why the Democrats lost some seats in the House and the reason why they didn't end up picking up the Senate is because of all of these crazy progressive Democrats that have been scaring the hell out of everybody in the country hmm. with policies like Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, uh, defund the police, all of that. So the one bone that I will throw them is defund the police. Yeah. Now, we've defended that substantively on this podcast. And, and I do still think that substantively... The argument of reallocating funds from you know police departments to go toward to make sure that uh, every time there's something that goes wrong, you're not sending someone with a gun in order to uh, in order to uh, respond to that call because mm -hmm. in some cases it might not warrant that. I do think that that is correct on the policy. Yeah, but there is definitely an argument to be make to be made that the framing of defund the police is just not popular. Mm -hmm. It's not. But like, importantly also, like, very few Democrats have actually come out in support of the language yeah. of defund the police. Yeah, like, even Bernie Sanders. It's really like, not a <laughs> core part of the Democratic Party. It's something that Republicans throw at the Democratic Party to, to fearmonger about yeah. the cultural change that they yeah. claim the, de the Democrats will usher in. Yeah, I mean Bernie Sanders, who is like the, who's the most progressive senator in the country, he's he's actually rejected the framing of of defund the police. Yeah, exactly. so I mean, it, so no one you know, no one lost the race because they were advocating for defund the police. Certainly, yeah. yeah. But let's talk about Medicare for all. So, um, and, and this actually comes direct. So there was this there was this phone call among the Democratic Caucus. Um, in which, you know, there were, there were several kind of moments in which people um, had their own takes from it. Uh, one that I want to read is from House Majority Whip uh, James Clyburn. Uh, he's a Democrat from uh, South Carolina. And on the call, he said, quote, If we are going to run on Medicare for all, defund the police, socialized medicine, we are not going to win. Hmm. So we already talked about defund the police. First off, Democrats who are running on Medicare for all, they're not calling it socialized medicine. Yeah, that's and Republican it's not socialized framing. medicine like that is Republican framing. So one thing that's important to note is that there is a substantive difference between Medicare for all and socialized medicine. So Medicare for all is a single payer system. A single payer system means that the government picks up the check, but the hospitals are still private. Mm -hmm. Right. You still have private hospitals. Socialized medicine means government picks up the check and controls the hospitals. Yeah. So like, uh, you know, the the NHS in um, in Britain, you know, where the government uh, both does control the hospitals and also, of course, picks up the check. Mm -hmm. That's not what people are arguing. Yeah. So that right there is a complete non sequitur. But it's a good but it's a good illustration of what will actually cause us to lose. Yeah. Giving the argument away to the Republicans, conceding yeah. the point that your that your progressive colleague in your caucus is actually a crazy socialist. That will cause us to lose. Yeah. 
like don't concede that ground now another quick bone that i will throw is uh at one point there was this um there is a uh, representative from virginia named abigail spanberger and she was basically making the argument of don't use the word socialist all right stop using the word socialist and this is actually something we've talked about on the pod before yeah where we've said that you know when elected officials like bernie sanders or alexandria ocasio cortez refer to themselves as democratic socialists they're just not yeah i mean when you look at their policies it is social democratic yeah it is not democratic socialist there is a major difference between the two of those mm -hmm. um so and again you know it's just adding fuel to the opposition's fire and like if you want to really make a clear argument for why uh, a democratic socialist is your position that's one thing but like if you're not even going to be a social democrat don't pretend to be a social democrat for sure <laughs> yeah yeah so you know i i do think that it probably it also probably wasn't the smartest idea for social democrats in congress to call themselves democratic socialists you know like so i will i will i'll give some ground on that mm -hmm. but the important thing is the framing that running on Medicare for all is the reason why we lost has a ton of problems. Mm -hmm. Number one, Joe Biden did not run on Medicare for all. He was he was very unapologetically against Medicare for all. Yeah. Number two, none of the Democrats in swing districts who ran on Medicare for all lost reelection. Mm hmm. The ones that lost re-election in swing districts were anti-Medicare for all. Yeah. You know? So that is just, like, that right there, I mean, kind of blows it out of the water. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there are other electoral examples we can point to. Like, let's look at the example of Texas, for example. So Beto O'Rourke, before he completely did a 180 and became a standard establishment centrist hack in the primary. He was running unapologetically for Medicare for all in Texas. Mm -hmm. He was visiting every single County and he was running unapologetically for Medicare for all. And he only lost his Senate race by like two or 3%. Yeah. Now, yeah, the making Senate race up, this in Texas, making up a tremendous amount Texas. of ground against Ted Cruz. Yeah, in Texas. Conversely, compare that to uh, the Senate candidate this time around in Texas, which is Mary Hagar, who ran against John Cornyn. Mm -hmm. She lost by almost ten percent. Yeah, and she was running, and she was not running on Medicare for all. She was running against that. Mm -hmm. Like in her primary, she was running against that. So, look. If you want to make the argument that it's not as simplistic as if you run on Medicare for all, you are definitely going to win in red districts. Like, I don't believe it's as simplistic as that. However, it is important to recognize that the argument that if you run on Medicare for all, that means you're going to lose. There's just no evidence for that. Mm -hmm. That's it's just not true in swing districts. Democrats who ran on Medicare for all, they won. And. And another important point that I want to make on this is public support. It's polls on public support for Medicare for all. So the Kaiser Family Foundation 
found that as it stands, 53% of Americans support Medicare for all. Now, when you look at that, you might think, well, that's a pretty slim majority. You know, and, and, and perhaps it is. I mean, that is compared to only 42% of people that oppose it. So, mm -hmm. you know, that I would say that's an even slimmer minority. But, but, but you could argue that. But the important thing that this same study found was uh, they, they, they tested the attitude shifts upon hearing about different ways in which um, framing of Medicare for all would increase a person's likelihood of favoring or opposing. So, you know, when Medicare for all was framed as like, you know, something that might lead to delays in medical tests and treatments, you know, overwhelmingly it was, it was opposed. Um, when it was labeled as something that could threaten the Medicare program, it was overwhelmingly opposed. When it was framed as something that most would make most Americans pay more taxes, it was overwhelmingly opposed. When it was framed as eliminating private health insurance companies, it was for the most part opposed. Mm -hmm. But the issue is all of those framings are flawed framings. First off, the leading to delays, that's that's that goes back to this argument that we brought up on the pod, which is just not a good argument which is that in a Medicare for all system, rationing happens. And of course, rationing happens. Rationing happens in all systems, mm -hmm. but rationing happens even more so in our current system. And rationing in our current system is based on who can pay, not based on need. Uh, not based on need. So like half of Americans, about approximately half of Americans have cited cost as a reason for going for going without treatment. That's rationing. That is rationing. So that's bad framing. Um, threaten the current Medicare program. That's a laughable, like, that's a laughable argument. Yeah. Um, eliminating private insurance companies. Well, we've already argued on the pot. It doesn't necessarily do that. It just says that if it's covered by the, by the, the, uh, the single payer, then it cannot be covered yeah. by private insurance, which means that if it's not, then it can be. Also importantly, so it, when you just say eliminate private insurance companies, without the caveat, and be replaced by government insurance. That's a problem. Obviously, eliminating yeah. insurance would suck. No one wants that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, let's compare those framings to framings that actually frame it in a way that is fairly accurate. So number one, framing it as it would eliminate all insurance premiums and reduce out-of-pocket care costs for most Americans. All right, and again, that actually is the framing that sort of, you know, go that is the response to requiring Americans to pay more in taxes because it reduces out-of-pocket expenses. You might have a slight increase in your taxes, but it's going to reduce out-of-pocket expenses. When you frame it like that, support goes up to 67 percent, mm. 67. And then when you frame it as guaranteeing health insurance as a right for all Americans, 71 percent. Mm -hmm. The thing is, when you are making the argument for Medicare for all, and you're making it honestly, and you're making it well, people support it. Yeah. But if you are accepting the Republican framing that it's taking away choice, you're sabotaging yourself. Yeah. Because number one, people are starting to associate Medicare for all with the Democratic Party. They shouldn't, but they are. And so... When you are running in a district and you are making the argument against Medicare for all, you're shooting yourself in the foot mm -hmm. because people are going to 
people are going to hear what you say and say, okay, well, that person doesn't support Medicare for all, but their party does. Yeah. So I don't want their party to have power, so I'm going to vote against them. Instead of making the argument, making it well, and putting to rest all of these idiotic talking points, yeah. that is how you win. Yeah. And imp importantly, from a policy perspective and like a political strategy perspective, you cannot tailor your policies to the misrepresentation of your policies that that Republicans put out there, right? Like you can't fix the fact that they're going to call it socialized medicine by scaling it back a little bit and and saying that you're going to have um, you know a public option. They'll still call that socialized medicine. There, there is zero, absolutely. They called Obamacare socialized exactly, medicine. Yeah, exactly. There is absolutely zero benefit. And a, a, an insurance mandate that requires you to buy private insurance, they called that socialized medicine. Yeah, exactly. Laughable. So there is no way to fix the fact that Republicans and uh, the GOP will will improperly frame your policies to their constituents to make the argument against you by changing your policies. They're unconnected. So you better so there's literally no point to say that that's costing you votes. Um the other thing I think is that like if like I think there's a reason why so many of these races are so close, especially in places where the um, candidates are very moderate. It's because you can't freaking tell them apart. <laughs> it's because their policies are almost the same. And so, and so what ends up tipping the scale is the, the things that do or don't scare you about the narrative about that group of people. And so like, like if I think about, if I think about like, um, like a working class American, right? Like as a working class American, you probably care a lot about wages and the economy. And which we saw in like Florida where they voted for a, you know, a, a $15 an hour minimum wage, but then went heavy for Trump, right? So you probably care a lot about wages and the economy. And you might have seen um, that Biden and Trump might look very similar to you in that regard. Like, like Biden didn't really emphasize economic populism and focusing on raising the minimum wage and things like that. But under Trump, you experienced a tax cut uh, and wages overall have increased slightly under his administration. So maybe you think, well, I could really go either way. So the thing that's going to break my tie is some other issue. So if you're a white working class American, maybe it's that Democrats... The narrative about Democrats and cultural change scares you. Or if you are a, um, a, a Christian uh, working class American, maybe it's the fact that Democrats um, are pro-choice that scares you into voting Republican. The fact is that like, if you're not going to differentiate yourself on the things that actually really, really matter to people, like their well-being, their health, and make those arguments for why they're going to be good for people, then you're going to look exactly like the moderate candidate, like moderate Republican candidate on the other side. And the thing that's going to break the tie is how well they slander you. Yeah. And I think, I think you bring up such an important point, especially with Florida. So, you know, Joe Biden, like he, he briefly mentioned 
his support for the $15 an hour minimum wage in one of the debates. And, you know, we, we brought that up when we said, yeah, that was very refreshing, but you know, I mean, Bernie Sanders can't be in a room with anybody for, for five minutes without shouting minimum wage. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, um, and, and that convinces people that he's going to fight for it. So, I mean, I mean, let's look at two important examples of ballot initiatives. So, of course, the first one is minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Minimum wage won 60% of the vote in Florida. Mm -hmm. 60%. And yet, the vote went pretty, like, pretty comfortably towards Donald Trump. Like, that was one of the early calls. So Yeah, Donald like, Trump got 51% of the vote in Florida. Yeah. So, like, if you're Joe Biden and you have this winning issue, why the hell wouldn't you spend all of your time talking about yeah. that? And and partially it's because his like whole big strategy was not being Donald Trump and making sure that you knew that. But if you're someone that maybe doesn't care about that very much, and there are plenty of people for whom that's true, like maybe you really believe that politics in Washington is rotten to the core, and so it's a choice between a rotten politician or uh, Donald Trump, who's just a rotten person. Maybe it doesn't actually matter to you what they seem like. And so yeah. those issues actually make a freaking difference. And so when you're not out there making arguments about why you're better and why you're going to help people more, you're giving votes away. Yeah. And let's look, let's look at another political issue. Marijuana. Yeah. Biden is against legalizing recreational marijuana. Mm -hmm. But on the same day, in Montana, South Dakota, New Jersey, and Arizona, ballot initiatives passed to legalize marijuana. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, New Jersey, solidly blue state, Arizona narrowly went to Biden, but Montana and South Dakota, mm -hmm. overwhelmingly red states. Yep. Overwhelmingly red states. So how is it? that a state that went overwhelmingly to Donald Trump overwhelmingly passed uh, legalizing recreational marijuana. Mm -hmm. I mean, the initiative in Montana got 57% of the vote. Mm -hmm. Like, Trump got 567 mm -hmm. Marijuana got more votes than Donald Trump in Montana. <laughs> <laughs> like... Why are you not running on these policies? Yeah. So at the end of the day, Democrats, as always, are going to learn all of the wrong lessons. And and one of the things that I'm concerned about is they're going to think, oh, what really helped us was all of these never Trump Republicans that came to our defense. Mm -hmm. The Lincoln Project, who was made up of a bunch of war hawks from the Bush administration. And then John Kasich, who, you know who basically made the argument um, in an interview recently that the best thing that happened to Joe Biden is the fact that the United States Senate is going to either be Republican or it's going to be really close. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, quote, and frankly, the Democrats made it clear to the far left that they almost cost him the election. Hmm. They didn't. Yeah, they didn't. That is wrong. Yeah. And, and 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 he's celebrating the fact that basically the far left is not going to have any pull over Joe Biden. And look, one thing that's important to recognize is that what he calls the far left 
is the dead center of the country, mm -hmm. like the dead center of the country. Yeah. And here he is basically trying to come over to the Democratic Party and say, here's what you should do. Mm -hmm. Look, John Kasich, I get it. It sucks that your party got taken over by a fascist. Yeah. And you know what? I respect the fact that you left it. That's wonderful. But just because your party completely <laughs> fucked itself over doesn't mean that you get to come to our party and tell us how to run things. Yeah. All right. We're not just going to listen to what Republicans say. Like we're, we're not just going to capitulate to Republicans just because like, you know, you ask us nicely. Mm -hmm. I mean, and this, and this goes back to, this is a really important point that I need everybody to learn. Like if you're a progressive, if you're a Democrat, never Trump Republicans, they were allies to take down Trump. And that was great. That was fine. Take yes for an answer, accept help wherever it comes from, as long as you're using it to work towards good ends. They were allies, but they are not our friends. Mm -hmm. And honestly, if you look at exit polls, they really didn't help that much because no. the idea behind never Trump Republicans is they're supposed to give us Republican votes. They're supposed to make Republicans want to vote for Joe Biden. 94% of Republicans voted for Donald Trump. 94% mm -hmm. of Democrats voted for Joe Biden. That supposed moderate Republican vote that might go for Joe Biden if he's just conservative enough. It just doesn't exist in a meaningful way. So now as we finish up our episode, we'll end on a high note. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Floors. What? Floors. <laughs> like the house floor, the Senate floor. No, no. So uh, I, uh, I I actually haven't gotten a chance to say this on the pod yet, but I closed on that house. Woo! And we have been working on it for the last few weeks, and I've been working on laying floors uh, recently. Mm. And I really like floors. I really like laying floors. I mean, part of it comes from the fact that like we've been walking on subfloor yeah. for the last week. So like when you actually put down some really good vinyl, it just, ah, it just feels so good. It just <laughs> looks so good. You know, I, and, and I was like the other day I was actually, I was, I was standing in the apartment and we were, we were about to leave for the day to be done with renovations. And I was looking at the floor and I was just legitimately so happy, <laughs> you know? So yeah, floors made me happy. That is excellent. <laughs> that is such a boring adult thing to say, but yeah, floors. It, it I just love a good floor. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like our highlights are getting lamer over time, but like to be fair, yeah. we're stuck inside all the time. What do we expect? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, and also uh, you know, uh, Trump lost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We talked about that. <laughs> <laughs> highlight of the year. Yeah. Um, what about you? What about you? What, what was your highlight, Michael? So my highlight is actually something that is yet to come but that I'm super duper excited about, which is that my twin brother is going to be hosting a live stream concert, um, mm. which I'm super excited about. So if you're interested yeah, in, in that. hearing that, yeah, he's uh, he's got a YouTube channel. Just search Taylor Bloom. Um, he's on YouTube and he's got an announcement on there with his, his live stream. So if you're interested in awesome music sung 
vulnerably and soulfully by by an amazing musician and artist like definitely check that out um and i'm yeah, just super yeah. excited to to get to to see that uh in the, in uh i guess it is november 20th so a week and a half yeah yeah when 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 we were younger uh when the three of us were younger uh one of the things that we used to like doing would be like recording music mm. together uh now i didn't have any musical talent but i had recording talent mm. so like all of the recording talent that uh i have in editing pods uh i i got from editing music yeah and i just god you you and him are both so talented but like i you know i i i i do miss that and mm. and i'm really glad that taylor is continuing yeah continuing i mean since then he's like level. he's gone from like a a teenage guitar player and singer to like a legitimate professional musician who's been on tour yeah. and all this stuff. So like the stuff yeah. he's putting out these days is just so good. Yeah. Um, so, you know, big shout out to Taylor. Yeah. Love you, brother. Yeah, seriously. And with that, thank you so much for listening to the perspectrum and you'll hear from us again next week.